Well, let's look at God's word this morning. What book are we studying? All right, book of Acts. We've been in Acts for a while. We're going to be in Acts for a long while. Uh, just when I think I can move forward, uh, I, God steps in and slows me down and gets me to see something that uh, is important for us to see. So this morning, let's ask God to step in here this morning and make sure that our hearts and minds are ready to receive from him in his word. Thank you, God, for your word. It is such a helpful light in our lives. There's lots of uh, thoughts and, and, and feelings and and things that we hear, news throughout the week, it, uh, it can get us very unsettled. But your word brings us to a place of peace, a place of understanding, a place of growth, a place of joy. So we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that as we look at it this morning, you'll speak to each and every one of us right where we're at because you're here with us. So we thank you for that. And we thank you for your spirit. Guide us today in your word. Amen. Before we get started, I want you to think about time. As you can see in the background of our slide, I put a little a clock, a time thing, because we're going to focus a little bit on time. We're, we're pretty focused uh, on time ourselves. We, we, we have uh, our watches and our phones and our alarms and our beepers and our this and our that that keep us uh, up to the moment uh, in time. But time is an interesting thing. For ancient people, for people back in Bible times, they just used the sun. So the sun would tell them, you know, what, basically what time it was. Oh, it's morning. You know, the sun is rising. Oh, it's noon. The sun is right up there in the middle somewhere. And oh, it's evening. You know, so they, they used the sun. They had some sundials and things like that back in biblical times. It wasn't actually until almost a thousand years after Christ that Christians invented the mechanical clock. Did you know that? It was created by the church. And it was created to be used in communities to help people. We're talking about clock towers now. Those are the first things. We didn't have them on our wrist yet. To help people to know what time to come for prayer. They, they set these times throughout the day to come and to gather for prayer. So we can be grateful that, uh, that believers were, were thinking about coming together for prayer. I'm not so sure that we think of time in that way anymore. I don't think we think of our clocks as, oh, it's time to pray. But wouldn't that be nice if we could sort of reestablish that in our lives and have certain times that we set aside for prayer? The minute hand, which is on most of our watches and in some of our clocks and our classrooms and things like that, the minute hand was not invented until 500 years after the clock. So we're talking about the 1500s, late 1400s, 1500s. Somebody thought, oh, we could break this down into even smaller increments so instead of just being hours, you know, like if you have, do any of you have like a grandfather clock or your grandparents had a grandfather clock and it would chime, you know, instead of just chiming on the hour or even on the half hour, we could actually have the minutes down to, you know, a science here. And so that they, that's, they began to develop the, the clock in even tighter increments of time. And it wasn't until actually another 500 years, into the 1600s, that someone invented a clock that you could bring with you, that you could attach to yourself. Now, it wasn't attached to their wrist. You remember in some of the old movies, it was attached to a chain, and then there was a little pocket on your, on your clothing that you could put the little clock into. And then you could pull the chain and open it up and look at it. 
You know, so, so time is an interesting thing. If you, if you just think about the history for a moment, we're obsessed with time as a culture. We're, we've learned how to set alarm clocks and set alarms and be there on time and, and make sure that, you know, each moment of every day is, is filled with some type of activity so that we feel important, that we feel productive at the end of the day. Do you ever get to the end of your day? Sometimes you're like, man, I, di- I didn't accomplish anything today. You look at your clock and think of all the things you had listed on your to-do list and you got distracted and you didn't actually do those things. But sometimes we're the opposite. We just keep trying to shove more and more and more things into our 24-hour period and pretty soon we're exhausted. We're overwhelmed. We're struggling to make time for God. We're struggling to make time for prayer. Struggling to make time to really read God's word, to slow down and listen to the words that he has recorded for us in God's word. So, as we look at the passage today, God pointed out something very interesting to me about the chronology of what we're going to read. In in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 19, we need to understand the full impact of what is taking place and we can only understand it if we add the time to it if we read it as it is in acts chapter 9 it doesn't give us much detail about the time it uses words like suddenly or then but it doesn't tell us what happens in between some of these things what happens in between is very very important in fact so important that god inspired the apostle paul to give us more detail over in Galatians chapter 1. So I want us to understand it's, it's, it's like this. Luke here, who is the author of the book of Acts, is just sort of giving us the, the big picture as we read this passage here. It's similar in, in, in its construction as, as this would be. So if I were to tell you, Oh, I, 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 I went to school in Holden. I went to Wachusett High School. Then I moved to Rhode Island. I went to uh, school there. That's where I met my future wife. Then after that, I went to school out in, in New York. After I finished school, I came back, and my wife and I got engaged. And then I was back in Holden, and she moved to Holden. We got married, and then we had four kids. How long did that take? What's the span of time I mean, it only took less than a minute for me to tell you all of those major details in my life. That's how this is constructed here by Luke as he wrote this passage. Because he's writing about the whole history of the church. Everything that happened from, actually, in the gospel of Luke, from when Jesus was born, but all the way here in the book of Acts, from the day of Pentecost and on. He's, he's writing these big, broad, broad stroke, important details, but he's not putting in the details of the passage of time. And so it's important for you to understand, and and even if you could look for the book of Galatians in your Bible, and put your finger there in Galatians chapter 1, because we're going to see something very interesting that we don't see in Acts chapter 9. So we're going to read Acts chapter 9 for a few verses, so you can understand what I'm talking about in context. And then we're going to flip over to Galatians chapter 1 because Paul, inspired by the Spirit, and remember, this is God speaking through the apostle and having it written down for us for all time, gives us a lot more detail. That detail will be important to us later on this morning. 
So, in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 19, which is where we ended last time. So Paul has been through his conversion. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Ananias has come, and he is now healed from his blindness, and he has been filled with the Holy Spirit, and he has been baptized. It says in verse 19, well, we'll start a little bit at the end of 18. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, that's the middle of a verse here, but in the NIV that we're, we have here in the pew, there's like a, a little title that they give for the next section. So they break up this verse right in the middle of this thought, we think. And then it, that, that little um, title that the, the writers of the NIV put in there says, Saul in Damascus and Jerusalem. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Now, when we're reading it, we think, after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus because it's kind of one verse. That's just verse 19. And then verse 20 says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Paul, but yet Saul, see he's still Saul in this, in this passage here. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. And then in verse 20, 26, when he came to Jerusalem. So, so this whole passage is giving us some detail, but it is not giving us the detail that we're going to see over in Galatians chapter 1. So turn to Galatians chapter 1. It's page 1151 in the Blue Bible in the pew. And we'll read a little bit there about the details that the person that this involves, so this is not Luke, this is Paul, who was Saul himself, is telling us his own history. Starting in verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. So we have to put these two passages together. This is called using the Bible to interpret the Bible. Because we can use you know, our brains to try to interpret the Bible or whatever, but we're not supposed to. We're supposed to go to the Bible. If there is other scripture that helps us to understand other passages of scripture better, we, we go to them. We, we say, oh, God gave us more detail. God revealed something else here. God gave us an insight into that other scripture. So Galatians 1 is the insight into Acts chapter 9. Good Bible study lesson there on, on how we should study. So this is the one who, this is, this is his life. He's telling his life story. He says he, he didn't talk to anyone. He didn't consult any man after he was saved. He went immediately into Arabia and then later to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. See, he's giving us some time increments. After three years, he went to Jerusalem. If we just read chapter 9 of Acts, we think these things were happening. Boom, boom, boom. 
right? On the plain reading of that scripture. They say, oh, he was saved, he was baptized, he ate some food, he went and started preaching in Damascus, and then he went to Jerusalem. Because that's what Luke gives us as like the broad stroke. Luke isn't being deceptive at all. Luke is trying to get through the whole history of the church and all the major characters and the things that were happening. Like I said about my wife and I, we met, and then five years later, we were married. And then years after that, we had our four children over a long period of time, a big span in between them. But I didn't give you all that detail. I just said, I met her when I was in college. I went away to school in New York. I came back. We got married. We had four kids. And I stand before you today. Right? This is how Luke is writing. But when Paul is trying to explain the, the testimony, the, the history of his own conversion and his growth as a believer, he gives us more detail. Isn't that great? Do you love that the Bible gives us some more detail? You will. You will. You might be saying, like, what the heck? What, what, what's the big deal, Pastor Tom, at this point? You know, <laughs> I want you to, to, to just keep, keep with me here. You know, when, when, when Paul says, God was pleased to reveal his son in me, I, I want you to grab this. God is still pleased to reveal his son. He's still revealing his son. He still desires it. It's, it brings joy to God's heart to reveal his son to those who are lost and even to those who are his enemies, as Saul was at this point. God, if you have someone on your heart and, and that God has placed on your heart, God sometimes places individuals. They might be members of our family. They might be people that we work with. They might be friends who really don't know Jesus, but they've, you've got this burden. Don't give up on that. Keep that going. Keep bringing that before God because God is pleased to reveal his son and he will find a way. Each person has their testimony. He will find a way to bring Christ to that person. So keep praying because Jesus is revealing himself even now to lost people in this world. He's still revealing himself. I want to pause here and just pray. I want you to think of an individual Who's, who's a burden in some ways because you know how hurting they are. You know how discouraged they are. You know how hurt they are. Lost they are. Let's pause. You think of that person. You pray in silence yourself. Let's bring them before God. First of all, thanking him that he is pleased to bring Christ to that person. God, we each have people in our lives who are far from you. They might even be your enemies today. But your desire, the thing that brings you joy, is to bring Jesus to them, to bring salvation, to bring peace, to bring joy, to bring freedom. So we lift up these loved ones to you. And we thank you for your heart for them. You've also given us a heart for them. So help us to connect our heart with your heart and to keep live, lifting and believing that you will bring these people to yourself in your timing, in your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's go back to the book of Acts here on page 
Acts chapter 9, page 1086, 87. In Acts 9, verse 19, which is what we started with, it says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. But then it says, at once, immediately, he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. So if we only had nine, Acts chapter nine, it would appear that Paul instantly, immediately, was this amazing preacher about Jesus. We need to take Galatians to that and say, oh, that's actually not how it happened. Now, Paul, he's a very intelligent guy, right? We know that. He was trained by the best of the rabbis and the best of the schools. He was a top student in his class. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. We get that from his own mouth. He calls himself that. He was a real smarty pants kind of guy. In this passage, it says he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And they were used in the Old Testament. That's all they had at the time. There was no written New Testament. So he he was using the Old Testament prophets and the law to prove that Jesus is the Christ. But we need to think about this for a moment. How was he able to do that? He just became a Christian. If we read Acts only, he became a Christian and he instantly was baffling people by his great knowledge about how to use the Old Testament and the law and the prophets in order to prove that Christ was the Messiah. How did he learn that? Now, yes, God can do a miracle. But in this case, according to his own witness in Galatians 1, that's not how it happened. It wasn't an immediate miracle. He's a smart guy. But the things that he learned, he had to learn over some time. It seems that he took some trips. He traveled a little bit before he was baffling people by his great wisdom. Didn't happen right away. In between verse 19a and 19b, three years have passed, according to his testimony in Galatians 1. Three years have passed. The author, Luke, is telling it like what I said. I met my wife, we got married, we had four kids. Right? He's, he's telling us the story that way with the important highlights that Luke is being inspired to give us. Paul tells us in Galatians When God was pleased to reveal his son to me, I did not consult with any man. Keep that in mind, any man, right? Nor did I go up to Jerusalem, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. So we know there was a time frame there. And they didn't travel by jet. They didn't even travel by train. They had to travel by foot or by a donkey or by some slow, you know, slow process, right? So he didn't just go there immediately like, I'm going to go to Chicago tomorrow and come back tomorrow night. No, that's not what we're talking about. We need to be able to insert, I went immediately into Arabia there in between those two verses. You see, this is where God stopped me in my tracks because Sometimes we want instant growth. We want instant knowledge. We want to be better than we are today, like right now. But God has a process. God has a process. Discipleship is that process. 
It's created by time spent with Jesus. The apostle, Saul slash Paul, because we're still sort of in that time frame here, spent time with Jesus to be able to baffle the Jews with his great knowledge of the scripture and how Christ fulfilled all the Old Testament and all of that. Discipleship is a process. It's, it's, a, it's the time that we spend with Jesus. It's not a magic wand. We don't just wave it over you. Instant disciple. Yes, you're a disciple, but there's a maturity process to be able to know the scripture well enough to baffle the Jews because the Jews knew the scripture. They knew the Old Testament prophets. They knew the Old Testament law. And if Paul was to get up there and just start day one, okay, here's how it works, and trying to figure that all out as he's trying to baffle these people, I don't think it would have been the same effect. He went and spent time with Jesus. No man, it says. No man. So I started to think about that. Well, this is similar to those guys who were walking on the road to Emmaus. They were walking on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion. Christ had not risen yet that they knew of, and they thought that it was a lost cause. And then Jesus appeared and walked with them, and he began to talk with them. And it says that he actually showed them from the Old Testament What needed to happen? That Christ needed to die for our sins. That he would be dead and buried, but then raised again by the power of God to prove that we are forgiven and to prove that we can also have eternal life. He used the Old Testament to help teach these good Jews all that God had placed and woven within their history to help them to acknowledge Christ is God. He is the Messiah. He is the one that was promised by God. So even our great and mighty apostle, church planter, missionary, Bible writer, Paul, had to go through a discipleship process to know the scripture well enough to baffle the Jews. By the power of the Spirit, yes, but also by being remade, reshaped, Because God was going to use him for great things. He knew this from the very beginning when he was called. God God had a plan for him. It was a plan that was going to be great in one sense, but also cause suffering for him personally on the other. He gives a whole list in one of his books about how many times he was flogged for his beliefs and imprisoned and beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and put in jail He gives a whole list of the things that he went through for God. But the power to go through those things was built in his discipleship. Not just given as as an extra gift. Like somehow he became a Christian and got like extra. But we become Christians, we're sort of like didn't get the extra. That's not God. We all receive the Holy Spirit. But we all are called into discipleship, called to spend time with Jesus, being made into what God has called us to, his witnesses. So here's what happens in those pages in between, in those those spaces in between those words. God sent Paul to school. The great student, the great Pharisee, the great Old Testament guy who who knew everything about everything, 
had to go back to school, had to go back to kindergarten. He was a smart guy. He's a brilliant guy. But he had never been to a school like the one that God enrolled him in. Likely, the commentators talk about where he went. This is the Sinai. He says Arabia, but this is the Sinai Peninsula. This is where Moses went. This is where John the Baptist went. This is where Elijah spent time. This is where David went, King David, where he met with God, where Moses saw the burning bush. This part of the world right there, this, this right in their backyard was the wilderness. And this is likely where Paul met Jesus. Spent time with Jesus. He had met him on the road to Damascus in a flash, but now he needed to hear from Jesus on a whole different level. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment because we have people in Scripture who are similar to this. Do you remember Joseph from the Old Testament? Not, not Joseph, New Testament. Joseph from the Old Testament. He was given a great vision about how, uh, you know, almost the whole world would be bowing down to him. Even the sun and the moon would be bowing down to him. And he was a young man. So did that vision get fulfilled the next day? The next week? The next month? The next year? No. Joseph, when he shared that vision, was sold into slavery by his brothers. Betrayed. He was a slave in Potiphar's house. Then betrayed. Then he was imprisoned. Then betrayed. I mean, the poor guy, every time he thought, you know, okay, I'm going to get out. It didn't work, right? It was a school for Joseph that took 23 years until it was fulfilled. And then God used him to save not only his brothers, his family, the nation of Israel, but that whole region that went into a great famine. God used him as as a savior, as, a, as someone that can come and, and, and make this work in the midst of a famine. 23 years in school. Moses also went to school. Abraham also went to this school. David, who was anointed to be king by the prophet Samuel, went to school for 15 years before he became king. And that school, he was like running for his life. He was like hiding from the present king, King Saul, who wanted to kill him. And he was seeking God and he was asking God the hard questions and he was struggling with God to figure out how could this be true? You told me I was going to be king and now look at me. I'm hiding in a cave. I'm hiding in the wilderness. I'm far from what I thought you said. But God brought him through. He brought him through that testing, those trials, the failures, the victories. These schools are the same schools that some of us are in. God's promised you great things. His word confirms it. But when you look at your life, sometimes you're like, wait a minute. What am I doing in this prison cell? What am I doing in this cave? What am I doing over here when I'm supposed to be over there? God's not finished yet. You didn't graduate yet. You're not through school yet. He's developing you. He's working on you. He's working on your character. He's working on your faith, that's for sure, because what you see doesn't match what you believe, right? He's working on us. He worked on all the great people that we read about in the Bible to help them to become what he needed them to be, instruments, or like Tanya used last week, vessels, 
a vessel that he could pour himself into and take to the lost, take to the Gentiles. For Paul's situation, he was called to the Gentiles. Now, that's not an easy call. He's a Jew. Jews don't mix with Gentiles. God called him to do something he didn't want to do, but he had to bend his will. He had to bend his knee to God and say, God, that's not what I want to do. I want to go preach to the Jews, and you're telling me to go preach to the Gentiles. Yes, I am. Do what I ask you to do. Not about you, Paul. That's the wilderness sometimes for us. Because we want what we want. And we want what we want when we want it. But God has another plan. A better plan. We can't always see it, but it's a better plan. So what happened to this time, during this time, that Paul had with God? I think Paul had to rethink everything that he had been taught and now figure out what it really means in light of Jesus being the Messiah. Because he had been taught all kinds of stuff in his, in his Pharisee school, right? And like I said, he was the top student, so he knew it all. He was like, he could, he could figure out that equation maybe. But the problem was he only knew it from his perspective, from his tradition, from his people group, from, from that. He, he only knew that. He didn't know from God's perspective. He didn't understand how God worked. He understood what he, had been lear- what he had been learning and what his teachers taught him, but he didn't understand how it applied now to his life now, to the history now. And so Saul, let's ask the question, what did Saul even know about Jesus? He wasn't following Jesus for three years like the disciples were. He wasn't seeing Jesus give, give the Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't listening to Jesus teach and tell the parables and heal and deliver. He didn't see that. He may have heard about that, but the whole time he heard about it, he thought it was blasphemy. He thought it was a lie. He thought this was a false prophet. He was, he was just so angry. Sometimes it says that the Pharisees, they, they, they stopped up their ears because they didn't want to hear, you know, when, when someone was asked a question, they answered, and the answer was always Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. They'd go, ah, don't say that. It's blasphemy, right? That's what Saul was like because Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So if he, even if he did hear some truth, he didn't want to hear it. Because he thought it was a lie. Now this is fascinating because he now had been face to face with Jesus. He now has heard the simple truth that Jesus is God and God is Jesus. But all those stereotypes and all those resistance and all that defense mechanism and all of that is still in him. He's still Saul. So God did a work in him. During this time, God, God had to not just reboot him. You know how like when your, your computer needs to be rebooted because it's not working too good? God had to rewire him. He had to take out the wires and like reconnect them in a whole different way so that his mind would work in the way that God needed it to work to baffle the Jews and to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And then to bring the Jews and the Gentiles together as one body in Christ. That didn't happen by waving a magic wand over Saul to make him Paul. That happened in the wilderness. 
And the interesting thing is, this, this three-year gap is not just a three-year gap. Because he comes back. If you go back to Acts chapter 9, he comes back after that three years. He spends some time there. They get so, they get so angry at him. They're ready to kill him, verse 24 says of Acts chapter 9. They want to kill him. They're guarding the gates. So his followers took him by night and lowered him down in a basket through an opening in the wall. And then he went to Jerusalem. Again, there's a time break there. Some say it's another three years until he goes to Jerusalem. Others, it's not as clear. That's, this one's not as clear. He tried to join the disciples there, but they were all afraid of him. They wouldn't believe that he was really a disciple. Then he meets Barnabas. Good thing he met Barnabas. They go through and Barnabas helps him. But listen to what happens. <laughs> he talked in verse 29 and debated with the Grecian Jews and they tried to kill him. So when the brothers in the church learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. When he goes to Tarsus, we don't hear from him for nine more years. Historically, they, they, they call it the silent years. Paul's, Paul's silent years. It, he just goes like MIA, off the radar. Right? He's still walking with Jesus. He's still talking with Jesus. He's still looking at those Old Testament scriptures. He's still looking at those promises about the Messiah. He's still understanding that was Jesus. Oh, Isaiah's talking about Jesus who was crucified for us. All of that took time. And the reason I'm taking time on it here, because God wants to remind us, it takes time with Jesus to be transformed into the image of Jesus. You all want it fast. I know you. You're fast people. You're like microwave mashed potato people. Take the packet, open it up, pour it in a bowl, put some water in, stir it up, throw it in the microwave. Boom! Mashed potatoes! That ain't mashed potatoes. It's some kind of weirdness. But mashed potatoes come from taking the potatoes, peeling the potatoes, taking those little growth things off, and they call them eyes, which is really creepy. Cutting the eyes out of them, cutting them up, put them in the boil water, let the water boil, then strain the water out, then get out the mixer, then smash them down, then get the mixer, then get some sour cream and some chives and some butter and maybe some cheese and put that in and mix it all up and get it all. That's mashed potatoes. You don't take mashed potatoes, take them out of an envelope, pour them in the thing, pour water, put it on 60 seconds. Boo! Mashed potatoes. No. Right? But we live in a culture where everything, we want it fast, we want it now, we want it our way. Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special orders, don't upset us now, whatever that is. Have it your way, right? That whole culture has been so built around us that we even come to God with that expectation. God, just make me perfect. I want to be perfect today. I want to do everything right. Always think every right thought today and never make another mistake ever. And he says, you're such a microwave potato thing. 
Come on, let's do this the right way. Let's slow down. Let's spend time together. Read my word. Listen to my word. Pray to me. Pour out your heart to me, but listen for me to to guide you back to the truth, guide you back to my plan. Your plan's not so great. Mine's awesome. You want my plan. Let me convince you. Bend your will. Bend your will. Let your knee bend before me so that I can pour out on you the destiny that I created you for. The reason you exist is not to be microwave mashed potatoes. It's to be the real deal to be Jesus for people, to understand how the word of God applies to everything in the entire world. It applies to world history. It applies to the the biology world. It It applies everywhere. But we can't know that unless we spend time with Jesus, in his word, alone with Jesus. The point is that time alone with God, it's the only way that any of us can mature. It's the only way that any of us can have a new life in Christ. It takes a lot of time. Now listen to these couple of verses. I want you to, to hear these couple of verses because in that time that Paul had with Jesus, whether it's the three years or the 10 years or whatever that time is, he learned how to preach Christ accurately. So accurately that we say like he's the greatest mind in the New Testament. Everything that he wrote is just like, wow. You know, look at the book of Romans. Wow, you know. But in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, because this is something that we use on a regular basis here at the church when we have communion together, he writes this. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I pass on to you. I love that. Jesus had already ascended into heaven before Saul ever comes on the scene, as far as we know. So he and Jesus weren't having secret meetings or anything like that. He was in the wilderness. He was in Tarsus. He was spending time in God's word. Now, he didn't even have a Bible. Think about that for a minute. He didn't pack up his Bible and his journal and go in the wilderness, open up to the Psalms, start. No, 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 no. He didn't have that Bible. He didn't have Old Testament scrolls because those were kept in the synagogue. He could remember what he studied in the Old Testament scrolls about the prophets and the law, but he couldn't look it up. He certainly couldn't Google. He had to tune his heart, tune his mind to the Holy Spirit, to God, and learn from him. And go back over the things that he had learned and say, oh, that's what that meant. Oh, that's what that means. This is like intimate time with God. Do you have intimate time with God like that? You need it. If you want to mature as a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you want to live out your destiny, why God created you, if you want to be a witness, a true witness for God in this world, you've got to have time like that with Jesus. You don't have to go to Arabia or Mount Sinai. One of the commentators says, we think Paul actually was at Mount Sinai. Do you, do you know what Mount Sinai was <laughs> in the Old Testament? That's where Moses went up and actually met with God, and there was flashes of lightning, and, and that's where he got the Ten Commandments. And So they're saying, we think Paul was actually on Mount Sinai. 
in that kind of environment where it was like him and God, him and God, figuring this thing out, God downloading to him and rewiring him and helping him to be who God knew he could be, but he wasn't when he was Saul, but now he became because of that time with God. Think about that. Think about the things you expect of yourself or the things you expect of others who are not spending enough time with Jesus. You want them to be perfect. You want yourself to be perfect. But you're not spending enough time with Jesus. How can he rewire that? How can he heal that? How can he teach you that? If the only time you spend with Jesus is sitting in the pew on Sunday. The rest of the week, you're on your own. The transformation process is slow, if not at a halt, when you just live on one experience with God a week. And the church experience is general in the sense of we're all here together, right? We hope that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us individually. But really, as I prepare, I know I'm talking to all kinds of different people. I'm talking to some people who are walking with God and doing great this week. I'm talking to other people who fell and are doing horrible this week. I'm talking to some people whose hearts are broken this week. I'm talking to some people who are trapped in, in, in just their thinking this week. They can't get out of their own mind. I'm talking... So... so we have to be as general as we can so that God can use this environment to reach us. But he has an appointment with you and you and you and you every day as much as you want, as much as you can afford. And he wants to talk to you about you. Not about me. Not about somebody else. Because he made you and he has a destiny for you. He has a purpose for you. And he wants you to fulfill it. That's the goodness of God. So, end of story. The final point is that time alone with Jesus, it can build you a new heart and it can transform your life. But you have to give him time. You have to give him time. You have to find a way to do that. For some of you, that's easier than others. For some of you right now, you're saying, that's impossible. It's not impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. You can find the time to develop your heart, your mind, to hear from God and be changed and be transformed. You're not stuck the way you are. Amen? I know that God is at work here in this room and some of you in a very deep way and I don't want you to ignore it. There's something called conviction. It's not condemnation. It's very different than condemnation. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit says, yeah, you've got to work on that. And the Holy Spirit is gentle and the Holy Spirit is kind because he is God. But he may be saying to you, this is it. This is the message for you. You've got to change. 
You've got to give me space to change you. Oh, you're never going to change. Jesus wants to spend time with you, and sometimes you run from him. You're afraid to spend time with him. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He welcomes you, mess and all. He still welcomes you. Because any time that you spend with him is good time to work on your stuff, to surrender your stuff, to receive his blessing, and to let him help you mature and live out the destiny that he has for you. God, continue this work in our hearts this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen.